Welcome to Broken Law, brought to you by the American Constitution Society, a 501c3 nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. I'm Beth Binchick, Director of Policy and Program at ACS. In August, the Biden administration announced a student loan forgiveness plan under which eligible borrowers could receive up to $10,000 in student loan forgiveness, with eligible Pell Grant recipients receiving up to $20,000. The Biden administration's plan was anticipated to provide relief to tens of millions of borrowers. While many were thrilled by the debt relief they anticipated, others argued that the Biden administration had overreached and exceeded the limits of executive authority. Legal challenges were mounted in two cases, Biden versus Nebraska and Department of Education versus Brown, were heard by the Supreme Court on February 28th. Here to help us understand the challenges brought before the court and what this could mean for the future of student loan debt is Luke Heron, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Alabama. Luke participated in the amici brief that was submitted by legal scholars in support of petitioners. Luke is also the former legal director of the Debt Collective and the former managing editor of the Law and the Political Economy blog. Luke, welcome to Broken Law. Thanks for having me, Beth. Glad to be here. All right. Let's start off with some basics about the Biden administration's loan forgiveness plan. Uh, Can you explain how that plan works and what authority the administration used to provide it? Sure. So uh, last August, the Biden administration announced that um, they were going to end the payment pause, which has been in place for the past two and a half years during the COVID pandemic. Uh, which started with the Trump administration and was extended multiple times throughout both the Trump and Biden administration. And the Biden administration said that when they end the payment pause, they would cancel a certain amount of student debt for certain students. And the way they did it was for individuals making less than $125,000, anybody who fits that characterization uh, will be eligible for $10,000 of student loan cancellation. And if a student who makes less than $125,000, also uh, had Pell grants when they went to college that are eligible for $20,000 of cancellation. And then the same applies to households that, you know, um, couples that make uh, $250,000 or less, right? Twice $125,000. So that's the basic structure of the plan. There are a couple wrinkles in the plan. One is that it only applies to students whose loans are with the Department of Education, that is that they're direct loans, um, not to students who have what are called FELL loans, which are loans from private lenders that are guaranteed by the government, which is the old way the student loan program used to work. And that cuts out um, actually a fair amount of borrowers. Um, And then the other wrinkle to the program is that I think about 8 million borrowers will be eligible for automatic cancellation without application, although they can opt out of the plan if they choose to. But uh, for most borrowers, they have to file in uh, an application. And uh, it's a fairly minimal sort of income attestation form, um, but it, it has to be filled out. So borrowers have to hear about it and do it. And as of, you know, although the as we'll talk about, the application process has been paused, uh, I, I believe about 16 million people uh, already filled out that application within a month, which is about half the people eligible for cancellation under the plan. So the the application, although applications are usually an enormous barrier, it's been a relatively small barrier in this circumstance. Awesome. And what authority did the Biden administration use to put forth that plan? And what kind of process did they have to go through? The Biden administration used an authority called the HEROES Act, H-E-R-O-E-S, HEROES Act, that was originally passed 
after 9-11 to provide student debt relief for first responders and for um, for people in the military. And this is something that actually Congress had previously done and after previous disasters to sort of do a one-off as part of a disaster relief program, pause, pay, pause student loan payments or give the Department of Education flexibility to modify uh, obligations of student debtors. But the HEROES Act was made permanent a few years later and was expanded to not just include first responders or, or military members, but anybody who is in the middle of a, an emergency, a national emergency or a disaster. And um, so obviously that's a relatively new statute. And it had previously been used in a couple, you know, disaster circumstances. It also was previously used for the payment pause. When um, the COVID pandemic hit, the Trump administration announced that it was going to pause student loan payments. Um, It wasn't actually entirely clear about which legal authority it was using. Uh, And then Congress approved it. And then they so. but anyway, the bottom line is they did then use the HEROES Act authority to implement the payment pause. And the Biden administration uh, decided to use that authority to add to the payment pause and to say, when we restart payments, we're going to cancel this debt. And the justification they provided was that pausing payments. So the, the purpose of the HEROES Act is to prevent people from being made worse off financially with respect to their student loans by a disaster, an emergency or something like that. And um, the Biden administration made a determination that because pauses, uh, payment pauses often result in delinquencies because borrowers don't know the payment has started again or um, are otherwise, you know, in, in disastrous circumstances. Still recovering from the emergency. Right, exactly. They point to evidence that delinquencies tend to spike after payments restart. And so they thought it it made sense to reduce the principal obligation for folks um, so that uh, they wouldn't face because because obviously a borrower becoming delinquent because of the payment pause would make a borrower worse off. Um, and so they wanted to prevent that from happening. And that was the reason they invoked the HEROES Act. And then you asked about the process. The HEROES Act does not require any sort of notice and comment, as most administrative action does, of course. Um, but it does require the, the secretary to announce what they're doing and then to publish a explanation of which, because what the HEROES Act allows the secretary to do is to waive or modify some provision of the Higher Education Act, which governs students' loans. And the secretary just has to publish which provisions of the Higher Education Act they, uh, he, in this case, modified uh, and and provide an explanation in the Federal Register, I believe, within 90 days. Got it. Um, and as you mentioned, there was a lot of excitement by many borrowers who are looking at this plan and seeing, hey, uh, some of my student loan debt will be canceled. Um, you know, it's reflected by just the overwhelming response in the application. That's not something you typically see when an application is first posted. But of course, at the same time, there are some serious uh, other feelings and challenges being brought forward. Two of those made their way to the Supreme Court. They were heard on February 28th. And I think I'd like to just start off with the case that was brought by states. Um, so six states brought a challenge to the loan forgiveness plan. and. Could you just give us some background on, you know, what they were claiming and how they got to the Supreme Court? Yeah. So, well, before I do that, it's worth saying or making more explicit some of what I think was implicit in the question, which is, you know, the challenges to this legal program have all been brought by 
um, members of the conservative legal movement um, who are opposed to you know both the specifics of this plan, opposed to any progressive action, opposed to the Biden administration, and certainly opposed to expansive use of administrative agency authority. Um, so you know it sort of ticks a number of boxes for the conservative legal movement. But the, the challenge for the movement was to find plaintiffs who had standing. And so the, the, there were a number of temp- attempts before this state case was filed um, that were basically summarily kicked out of court, um, some of which were connected with the conservative legal movement. And by that, I mean, you know, formal organizations who are um, avowedly, um, you know, litigation shops uh, designed to, to implement conservative priorities. But there was a couple sort of one-off you know, individuals who were ideologically opposed, who said, you know, who claimed that they had standing because their mortgage rates were going to go up because lack of student loan payments was going to cause inflation, which was going to cause it. And so anyway, so standing was always a hard thing to do. And the reason for that is, you know, the government is looking to convey a benefit. So I think kind of the challenge there is how do you say that you're harmed when the government is really just providing a benefit to people in this loan forgiveness? Yeah, well, this gets at a deep set of questions with respect to this case, which is that we have a tendency, and even I have a tendency, to think of standing as a technical doctrine, a technical barrier to suit. But it the the test for standing is whether you're injured and whether the court can redress your injury. And so it's telling that we're talking about a program for which it's hard to find somebody who was harmed. <laughs> that would seem to speak to, you know, whether or not whatever one speak thinks about the virtues of standing doctrine, it would seem to speak to the value of the program in a, in a way that the merits can often get confused on. But we were talking about the state's case. So the state case was brought by a group of state attorney generals. And this is an increasingly popular thing for both conservative and liberal state attorney generals to do is to, you know, if they're ideologically opposed to or, you know, opposed in principle to an action taken by some part of the federal government, they'll sue, you know, never mind whatever law breaking is happening within their jurisdiction and so on. So the lead state is Nebraska, but the most important state for standing purposes is Missouri. And Missouri's Interesting, I think, because they have the uh, Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority, MOHILA, um, which was right. central to the standing questions that the Supreme Court really dug in on. Yes, right, exactly. So once the Biden, when the Biden administration first announced that it was going to do this, you know, limited active debt cancellation, there was a fair amount of discussion about, well, is this lawful or is it not lawful? And inevitably, the discussion turned to who would have standing. And in my view, a lot of commentators did not take the question seriously enough. But, the you know, the sort of flip response was, oh, well, there has to be some loan servicer or bank out there who's harmed. And that's the theory, basically, that Missouri wants to press in this case, which is to say Mohila, which I'm sure many listeners are familiar with intimately, is a both a student loan servicer which means it contracts with the Department of Education to, as it were, manage student loans, right? To, to interact with borrowers, to get them on, to direct them to payment plans, to collect their payments, and then, you know, channel them onward to either the government or to, to a private lender. And it's also a lender itself under the FEL program, right? The uh, Federal Family Education Loan Program, which was the way the higher education act used to work before direct lending became the only way that student loans were implemented, Mohila would issue loans that were, you know, 
federal student loans, but they were federal student loans not because they were issued by the government, but because the government guaranteed the loans, stood ready to pay off the loans if borrowers didn't pay the loans, and because they had to comply with certain requirements and so on. So Mohila's alleged interest in the cancellation plan was basically loss of revenue. The, the thought was if Mohila, as a lender, if borrowers consolidated their loans to become direct borrowers to be eligible for the cancellation, right? So that is moved away from Mohila being their lender to the Department of Education being their lender in order to qualify for this plan, then Mohila would lose revenues from that. And then the the other theory of harm is that Mohila would, if a number of borrowers are going to have their full principal canceled and a number of borrowers are going to have their principal reduced, Mohila would get reduced fee revenue from having to service those loans. And now Mohila is not a party to the case, right? So that, that would be the theory of harm to Mohila. Yeah, no, that's the trick. <laughs> that would be the theory of harm to Mohila. And we would still might have questions about whether that's even the, the right amount of harm or, or, you know, whether that is actually factually correct and whether that's the right amount of harm for standing and so on. But what Missouri wants to do is say a harm to Mohila is a harm to the state of Missouri because the state of Missouri created Mohila to do this lending, which, you know, this is not uncommon. Fed loan is the similar entity for the state of Pennsylvania and so on. And so that that's the theory. And we, I'm sure we'll talk in more detail about the theory, but that's the way that's the way the states. So Mohila, for whatever reason, doesn't seem to want to have anything to do with this litigation. One reason it might not is because it wants to be in good graces with the Department of Education, which can cancel its contract at any time. Another reason is that it thinks that it's actually in its benefit to get things moving again. And if it loses some fee revenue here, it might gain some fee revenue elsewhere. And it's a wash as far as Mohila is concerned. And maybe it's also concerned about its reputation with borrowers. So whatever the combination of reasons is, Mohila is ensuing, and I'm sure they got a lot of pressure to do so. So the state of Missouri had to you know, basically do its best to say, well, Mohila's not here and Mohila doesn't want to be here, but we can represent Mohila's interests in front of the court. And how do you think the argument fared in front of the Supreme Court? The liberal justices sure seem to have a lot of questions about that theory. And the surprise for me was also that Justice Barrett joined them and really pressing counsel on this argument. What do you think? The standing theory, I think, fared poorly. I mean, so it's now we have to break down what Missouri's theory is for why harm to Mohila is harm to the state of Missouri. And, you know, by the way, we're setting aside all the other states involved in this case, but because I don't think anyone really thinks that their theory is that plausible. And or another way to put it is Missouri's is the most plausible theory. And maybe if it wins on some, first of all, you only need one plaintiff withstanding. And second of all, maybe some of if some of Missouri's theories go through, some of the other states have related theories, but not quite as strong. So in any case, there's basically two forms of the argument. One is that, you know, because Mohila was created for governmental purposes. It's not a purely private corporation, right? It's this it's a it's a corporation with separate legal personality, but it's created at the pleasure of the of the state of Missouri to serve a limited set of purposes that that the legislature set out for it. That basically because it's like not quite an administrative agency of the state of Missouri, but something like that, the state of Missouri can act as its attorney. Even though it can separately sue and be sued on its own with its own attorneys, even though Missouri has no sort of attorney-client relationship with it, and indeed, you know, as was pointed out at multiple levels of the of the litigation, in order to get information from Mohila, Missouri actually has to submit a Sunshine Act, the equivalent of a FOIA request, you know, as if they're just a member of the general public. So that theory depends on, you know, that's not a well-litigated 
concept, like how in, in which circumstances are state created corporations? D- does a government have standing to sue for them when they're not suing for themselves? It's not something that comes up that much. But Missouri thinks that there's a case that is on point that uh, I believe is relatively easily distinguished because it involved a case, you know, the revenue from the public corporation was like directly given to the government and losses to the public corporation were losses to the government, which is certainly not true here. They're sort of totally separate fiscal entities. And so there was a a real sense in, in that case in which a harm to the corporation was a harm to the federal government and the government might have to sue to protect its own fiscal interests. And so it seemed to me that, you know, clearly all the liberal justices thought this was a failed theory. And I agree that Justice Barrett was skeptical. And I would not be surprised if there were also some conservative justices who were not asking all the questions they might have otherwise, because they found this to be implausible. So I, for instance, would, I I would think that Justice Gorsuch, you know, originalist, textualist, skeptic of standing that he is, would be skeptical of this theory. And then the other theory, the other basic theory is that, well, okay, if a harm to Mohila is not, you know, ipso facto a harm to the state of Missouri, then a loss of revenue to Mohila would channel through as a loss of revenue to Missouri, mainly through this mechanism that Mohila is is supposed to give money to something called the Lewis and Clark Fund, which is a scholarship fund that Missouri sets up, you know, some of its revenue. So, so this is a lovely little scheme that our student debt system has created for us where you create a private corporation to collect money from student borrowers, and then that, and then the revenue that's collected from student borrowers is then funneled back into scholarship funds. And so then we can further cut funding for higher education and replace it with more money from, from debtors themselves. It's a really um, smart and functional system that we've created. And now it's also going to be the grounds by which a state can claim that they can stop relief from student debt cancellation from happening. So it's an additional bonus. But anyway, the th- the, that's the theory, right? So that, that's the theory is that the state of Missouri would lose revenue, right? So its fiscal interests are harmed. Well, there's a couple of problems with that theory. One is a factual problem. And this was uncovered and highlighted in a brief submitted by the sociologist Louise Seamster and I think another researcher. And they, what they found was that Mohila hasn't given any money to the Lewis and Clark Fund for over a decade, and there's no reason to think it's going to give any more money in the near future. And uh, so the harm this, m- might not actually be happening. <laughs> that's right. And you know what? Even if it, I mean, the other issue is that even if it had given this money, there's, there's, it's not obvious that if it made some fraction less revenue, that it would be, it would not honor whatever commitment it honored previously to the Lewis and Clark Fund. And even that aside, it's, kind of a disturbing theory to say that there's almost a transitive property to standing that, you know, if someone injures me financially, that, you know, someone that I owe money to, my mortgage lender could go ahead and, you know, sue that person for the financial injury to me. I mean, that's not typically how standing works. It's, you know, if I have rights, I'm the one who's got to go to court to vindicate them. That's right. That's so. that's usually how it goes. You know, I think we can get it. I, I do think it's a harder question about how broad to think about how broad standing should go. Um, mm-hmm. But but here's a case where, I mean, first of all, as you say, it would require that extension of previous standing doctrine, even at on the best version of the theory, right? Even if there were this money channeling through and we could clearly make the expectation. But it's it's just not even clear that the factual predicate pertains. Yeah. So from the argument, I think... To me, this looked like the best chance that Missouri or the states had in finding, you know, justices that would say, yes, you've got standing. What are your thoughts about that? Is this kind of their best shot at being able to bring this suit? 
I think that's right. I mean, I think it's the best shot at anyone being able to bring a suit because we know that Mohila is not, I mean, unless Mohila changes its mind, in which case I thought we would have heard by now, or some other contractor with the federal government. I mean, they would have their own barriers. But unless that's the case, this is the best shot that that we know of because, as we'll probably discuss, the individual students did fared very poorly at the Supreme Court. So, so yes, and it was the best, I think it's the best they can do. And I probably think that their best shot actually is you know, maybe they would get enough justices on board with the theory that, you know, Mohila is like enough a creature of the state that, you know, Missouri can sue on its behalf. I'm not sure, you know, the conservative justices would want to embrace all the potential implications of that theory, but maybe they could cabinet in the right way. But in any case, I thought what oral argument revealed was whatever the justices think about the merits of the program, and we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, you know, there were not as strong arguments for standing as one might hope to convince a You're listening to Broken Law, brought to you by the American Constitution Society. ACS is the foremost progressive legal organization in the country. And every year, our national convention is the premier progressive legal gathering. We bring together lawyers, law students, scholars, judges, activists, and policymakers to examine some of the most urgent and challenging issues confronting our nation. This year, our national convention will be May 18th through the 20th at the Capitol Hilton in Washington, D.C. You should be there. Register today to benefit from our early bird special. To register, go to acslaw.org slash 2023 convention. Again, that's acslaw.org slash 2023 convention. And now back to the show. You mentioned the individual plaintiffs. I think they have an even more bizarre argument for standing and their claims. Can we dive into that a little bit? Yes. So 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 this is a, a separate individual case or a separate case brought by you know, brought by two individual plaintiffs, but really brought by a, you know, another conservative movement litigation shop, you know, I think probably did a email to its list. I mean, I know, I do know that multiple of these, you know, conservative nonprofits who have email lists, that just sent emails to their list. Like, do you have student loans? Do you want to sue the federal government? Like, you know, join the cause. And so this is the best they could do from, from, you know, shaking the tree throughout the country. And these are one student who is eligible for cancellation under this authority, but didn't take out Pell loans. So is not eligible for the full 20,000. And, you know, my heart goes out to her. I think it's, I think that's, no, I think him. Well, anyway, and then the other, the other one is not, I, I, to be honest, I didn't, I don't remember who, which is which, but the other one is not eligible at all because his income is too high. And again, I'm, my heart goes out to him. I mean, I think everyone should get student debt cancellation, but in any case, you know, if you're not going to be in solidarity with all other student debtors, unfortunately, I have relatively little sympathy. So they, and what they say is, look, okay, you know, we're not harmed by this. One of us is actually, you know, getting our debt can getting some of our debt canceled, but we're harmed because we... You should have done more. Right. You could have done the program differently. You could have included us in the program. And what they claim their interest is that was undermined, the, the nature of their harm is that they weren't included in the process, right? They, there wasn't a moment in which they could raise that problem to the department. And so what they call it, what this is sometimes called as a process injury, and this ha- something like this has been recognized before. And the usual situation is when, you know, there is this required process and the department in like the relative agency, the relevant agency hasn't considered the question that would relieve the burden. But their substantive argument is that the plan is unlawful. But that wouldn't include them in the 
then there wouldn't be any process for anyone to get any cancellation. So they have to. Yeah, you don't get more by vacating the plan. That's right. I mean, one of these plaintiffs loses $10,000 in loan forgiveness. So that seems a bit bizarre. And, And so an additional requirement of standing is that the harm has to be redressable by the court. And so they have to come up with a bunch of convoluted arguments that did not fare well in front of the, I mean, that won at the district court level, unlike the state cases, mm-hmm. this won at the district court level because it was in front of a Trump appointed judge who doesn't care all that much about the details. He's just happy to, you know, push the case forward in the litigation process. You know, I don't know how much we want to get into the convoluted theories, but what they had to say was something like, okay, we think this version of the plan is unlawful. But the Department of Education, if this is struck down, the Department of Education might consider doing a similar plan under another legal authority, namely the Compromise Authority under the Higher Education Act, which we can get into if you want. I mean, I I don't think that would be a bad way for the department to proceed. In that authority, there would be a process and we would be heard in that process and we might, they might consider our interests, right? So that's the nature. It's like our proceed, even though the Department of Education did everything that is procedurally required of it, and there's no reason for it to have considered us as part of the process to implement this rule, you know, there's this chain of events by which it might do the, a thing that, that is different <laughs> that would include us. Right. And, and yeah, and if that XYZ was not, happens. <laughs> right. And that is, you know, that's what we call a speculative injury. And it was not, that was not seen very favorably. I mean, when when these plaintiffs were in front of the Supreme Court, I thought, first of all, their attorney did not do a very good job. But second of all, it wasn't, it wasn't like you had any justices who were coming out in their favor in any sort of obvious way. And they were getting absolutely hammered by the justices who were asking questions. And then eventually the justices just turned to talk about the merits question that was really relevant to the other case because they were just, they didn't want to deal with it anymore. So I, I think they're going to lose. I mean, I think it just think it's, it's pretty clear they'll lose. And of course, it's easier for justices who are opposed to the plan to say that they should lose. And they say, oh, well, we're reasonable, you know, if, even if they want to find standing in the other case. Yeah. And I think maybe like the justices, we should turn to the substance of the argument and the challenges to the plan. So I think there's a a big question here about is the court going to apply the major questions doctrine, our favorite? Yeah. Yes. No, I mean, it's it's everyone's favorite doctrine. It's on everyone's minds and everyone's lips. So, okay, well, what is the major questions doctrine? Who knows? I mean, the major questions doctrine is the nature of it has changed over time. And it's it seems to be you know, so nominally, the best I can do is that currently it seems to be a clear statement canon by which a court will basically say, look, an issue that a federal administrative agency is addressing is major. Well, what is major? Well, let's put a pin in that. We'll get back to that. Then the statutory authority it's using to address that issue must speak clearly to the agency's authority to address the issue. And this is a way for the court to avoid deferring to the administrative agency to determine the scope of its own power, which, as we know, is the tradition. I mean, it's not a simple scheme for determining that, but the traditional Chevron scheme says, is the statute ambiguous? Then we defer, basically. And this would say, is the statute ambiguous? Then we don't defer, basically, because it says, if it's ambiguous, not only do we not defer, then the agency doesn't have the power, as long as it's a major issue. And like, well, then that brings us to this question about majorness. Well, what is it? Well, it seems like if it deals with a lot of money, that might be major. 
If it deals with a politically contested issue, that might make it major. If it's an issue that, well, this is maybe relevant to other questions, but it might also be relevant to the majorness question. If it's an issue that like has been debated previously, but the agency hasn't acted on and so on. So, you know, that's basically, you know, obviously that invites mischief. Basically, any issue Congress can start to debate. And now the Supreme Court said, oh, well, this must be major. So, <laughs> you know, we can't do anything about it. And so, and, and, and so anyway, that's the major, that's the major questions doctrine. We don't have to get too deep into all my reaction formations against it. But the way it would be invoked in this case would be to say, look, this is major. This is a lot of money that's going to be canceled. And oh, this is a politically contentious issue, you know, student debt. You know, a lot of people are talking about it. Congress has tried to do various things on it and has successfully done some things and not others on it. Some Republican Congress members actually tried to stop the Department of Education from doing this. Never mind that they didn't succeed. Never mind that there was a provision in an omnibus bill that that excludes any cancellation during the COVID basically for the next few years from tax eligibility, right? Is and so on, right? But okay, they're talking about it, so it must be major. And that's the, that would be the argument. And then therefore, we have to say, well, okay, does the statute speak clearly? And what does the statute say? The statute says this, the secretary has the authority to waive or modify any provision of the Higher Education Act to, I'm paraphrasing, to prevent borrowers from being made worse off with respect to their student loans during a, a disaster, an emergency, right? The COVID pandemic, we call it. And so as Justice Kagan, I believe, said at oral argument, you know, this, the Supreme Court deals with a lot of ambiguous statutes. This statute is not ambiguous. It, you know, it's enormously broadly worded. It's clearly meant to provide flexibility. And it's clearly meant to deal with this type of an emergency situation and to, to give the department a huge amount of flexibility. Right. It's, it speaks in broad terms. Wave and modify are pretty broad terms. But I think the conservative justices are still questioning. But does that really mean cancel? That seems to be the the big issue there is, does that go so far as to mean cancel? There's a number of different issues there. I mean, so the best version, so what the worst, the, I don't know about the worst version, one of the bad arguments they make is, well, Justice Scalia once said in this MCI case that modifies actually doesn't mean, it means like a minor change. I mean, I think he was wrong in that case, but in any case, certainly it doesn't apply here because clearly it's being used in a different context. And, and this is something this, the Solicitor General well well brought out. And also, as a couple of people pointed out with whom I was talking about this issue, you know, anybody who does contract work, a government contract work, knows that when a statute talks about waiving, modifying, releasing obligations, you're talking about changing the, you know, it's a contract. You're talking about changing the structure of obligations. That's not a minor thing. So whatever it meant in that context, this is a different context. But in any case, the best version, I think, of the, of the argument that this doesn't apply to cancellation, right? So first of all, it is already being applied to cancellation. People are having their interest canceled during the COVID pandemic under this authority, same authority. Nobody's challenged it. Nobody's arguing that it's unlawful. And that costs um, a lot of money too, right? I mean, that's that not costs, a small figure. <laughs> that costs a lot of money. But the, but the, the nature of the claim would be, look, <clears throat> canceling people's debt is not preventing them from being made worse off. It's making them better off because of the disaster. Like that's the nature of the argument. Mm -hmm. But there's a couple pieces to that argument. One is that the problem isn't that wave or modify aren't broad. It's that the statute requires, you know, restricts its application to situations in which borrowers are not made worse off. So first of all, if, if, the, if it's a question of statutory interpretation and whether the department correctly interpreted the statute to include 
cancellation. And, and we're talking about categorically excluding cancellation of principle as never being relevant to whether somebody is made worse off by a disaster. It's really not, it's not clear that's the matter of major questions doctrine. It's maybe just a matter of statutory interpretation. And it's the sort of statutory interpretation that it's not clear why the court would be better at it than, than an agency in understanding how to respond to disasters, how principle versus interest relates to disasters. It's not clearly spelled out in the statute. So this would be, I mean, I don't know if we have Chevron anymore, right? But this would be a classic case where you would have deference. But anyway, that would be, it would be some sort of statutory interpretation. And the court would say, but there's another version of this argument, which is not really a statutory interpretation argument, which says, okay, maybe sometimes it allows you can do cancellation of principle. But in this case, we, you know, you, the agency actually has to think about is canceling principle targeted to preventing people from being made worse off, right? By the, you know, has it actually considered the right things? And that's not a statutory interpretation real issue, as, this, as became very clear during the oral argument, but was muddied up in the briefs. That's really Administrative Procedure Act issue. That's a, is this an arbitrary, capricious, right? Is the agency actually deliberating over the right things? But then now we're on a very different type of inquiry. Where exactly did that land with the Supreme Court? That question on, are we making people better off? And I think kind of wrapped up in that, we also got to some other questions about fairness. You know, is this fair to those who aren't getting debt relief? I thought that was a very confused discussion. But okay, so the, so where did we end up in the Supreme Court? So it seemed to me, like throughout the argument, that the liberal justices, although some academics had expressed skepticism that any justice would think this plan is lawful, and I'm including you know some liberal academics there, it seemed clear that the liberal justices thought this was very clearly lawful, that they basically were going to side with the department. I mean, first of all, that probably no plaintiffs, I mean, certainly no plaintiffs had standing. And even if they did, um, that this is well, this is a classic, this is a clear, broad delegation of authority. The agency is acting within the scope of the authority. Maybe there's some questions about how narrowly tailored it has to be, but it's the, they, the statute speaks deferentially. The agency did a real deliberative process as much as it could in an emergency. Why are we getting involved? So, so let's talk about the conservative reaction, which is what was so with, with that in the background. It seemed to me on the merits question, there was, it wasn't obvious. I mean, certainly the conservatives generally are in favor of expanding the major questions doctrine and attacking the administrative state. And so, you know, Kavanaugh came out with that very early on. And, you know, Alito, we know, is basically gung-ho culture warrior on the Supreme Court, culture and political warrior, you know, of, of the most Fox News brain type. But part of the question is, well, is this the right case to expand it? What what are the implications beyond this case? Because it d- is the sort of statute that speaks very broadly, and it's a relatively new statute. So you can't say, well, it hasn't been used this way in the past because, well, okay, like how many disasters happened of the right sort and scope between 2003 and, right? So it's a bad, like, it's just going to be a, an embarrassing analysis, I think, if they really have to go down that road. So I think, but I did hear, so first of all, they don't seem to have that much shame, so maybe they'll go down that road. It's there seemed to be some sympathy, one, for the like for pushing on this question of are borrowers actually being prevented from being made worse off versus being made better off. And just as Gorsuch talked about this in terms of, well, look, uh, you know, some borrowers can be made better off. Right. We can get that they're not going to perfectly target the program. And, and I mean, I don't, you know, this is, this yeah. is, he was conceding this for sake of argument. I don't know how much it applies to a class. Right. And we, and you know, mm-hmm. you can't be perfect. And so, 
and you know you're doing it quickly and so on but you know how broad how how narrowly tailored basically does it have to be and my sense is that you know if the plan gets struck down if the if they're standing if the plan gets struck down that's going to be the the sticking point and i don't know if that's going to come out via the statutory interpretation question whether or not that includes major questions right which is supposed to be part of statutory interpretation or as a sort of administrative procedure act challenge as a you know it's an arbitrary and capricious and and it matters which it is right if they categorically exclude you know including principal cancellation and heroes which i think would be a pretty dramatic rereading of the heroes act i mean there's no limiting text in the statute. That's so. right. That's right. It says you can waive or modify any provision of the Higher Education Act. And, you know, I mean, it, it, well, so anyway, that you can go back and forth on the issue. But but I think it's more likely. So so if they do it as a categorical exclusion, then, you know, the whole plan is struck down and the Biden administration can't go back to the HEROES Act to correct the plan, right? It would have to do something else if it was going to try to implement the plan. If it's struck down on an Administrative Procedure Act arbitrary and capricious ground, the Biden administration could, in principle, say, "Okay, we're just going to modify. You know, we're going to think more carefully about how to how to tarot, you know, tailor tarot, narrow tailor <laughs> the class, and and try again. And in principle, they should be able to get that through. And so that would be that would make a real difference. Sure. And if you said. You know, and kind of that first scenario where the whole plan is struck down, you can't cancel debt under the HEROES Act. Are there other avenues that the Biden administration might look at to do something similar in canceling student debt or kind of what would be the next step that they might have there? So, first of all, let me let me just step back and say I was somewhat pessimistic going into oral argument in part because I'm just cynical about this court and because it, you know, breezed, I mean, a lot of the legal issues were not really teased out very well in the lower court and a lot of the factual issues. I mean, literally new facts are being adduced, right. at, you know, in amicus filings, you know, at the Supreme Court. Exactly how um, you want it to go. <laughs> exactly how you want it to go. I mean, I guess it's better that it's happening faster than slower from one perspective. You know, I thought, well, like they're on a mission you know, who cares? But I was, I guess, pleasantly surprised by, I mean, first of all, the Solicitor General did a really good job. And second of all, I just think, I think the issues became clear in a way that they were not, were a little bit muddied in the briefs and the justices seemed, you know, not as clearly on one side or another. Now, of course, that could be all an illusion, you know, who knows? But, but so, so the, I think it's definitely within the realm of possibility that the Supreme Court, I think the most likely positive outcome for the administration would be find that no plaintiffs have standing. I think that's, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's 50-50 either way. But if that does, if that's not what happens, then there's the question about what the administration has to do, right? So, but it's, it's worth to include that caveat. So the administration could still implement this program under, as, as the Brown plaintiffs argue, there is this separate authority under the Higher Education Act called the compromise authority and there's also a modification authority i mean again here's that word modify that is not restricted to emergencies is not restricted to making borrowers you know leaving borrowers as well off as they started at the beginning of an emergency it's not restricted in any way on the face of the statute this is an authority that i've argued that the administration should be using and so the administration could do that and should let me be clear, could and should do that if the if the court strikes this down. Now, it's not like that's going to go unchallenged. It's not like that authority has previously been used for broad... I mean, it's it's been used for broad relief when the Department of Education is settling with litigants, but it has not been used in this sort of 
unilateral way. And, you know, that means it's going to be eligible for this type of skeptical major questions treatment and so on. So if the Biden administration goes down that route, I think it's important that the Biden administration takes more seriously that it's faced with an actively antagonistic co-equal branch of government and play some hardball. And by that, I mean, don't announce that you're going to do the cancellation and wait a month and then start doing the cancellation. Announce you're going to do the cancellation after you've started, right? Get the program going and then saying, hey, we're doing this now. And, and get people relief. And then if you're challenged, resist at every step. And then, you know, make the court reimpose debts, if that's what they're going to have to do. First of all, there's legal questions about whether they can do that. And second of all, there's practical questions. And third of all, there's political questions. And just treat it, I mean, stake out a position. Don't say, hey, we're going to wait for the court to tell us whether this is lawful or not. And I think that's just more generally true about what both Congress and, and Democratic presidents have to be doing. Now, of course, there's all kinds of dangers with that type of thing. But, you know, frankly, I think that the balance goes the right way. So anyway, yes. So both, yes, there is this other legal authority. And we have to learn lessons from from this. You know, the, the reason that nobody's gotten relief yet, despite the fact that the Department of Education is ready tomorrow to cancel, you know, tens of millions of people's debts, is that they were polite and waited. And then they got an injunction slapped on them, which I said from day one, and other people said from day one, hey, like, that's what's going to happen. So now, you know, take it more seriously. So what can folks do? Or where can they learn more? What's the next step? And where we go from here? Good. Well, there's plenty of places to learn more. I'm sure there's going to be plenty of writing about this coming out in the near future. It depends on what you want to learn more about. But let me so let me just focus on the things that I think are useful to learn more about. There's some good articles that have come out from Eleni Shermer and The New Yorker both about these authorities and how they're related to the political movement to cancel student debt and to to cancel debt more broadly. And there's a very good article about that movement, uh, of which I've been a part, but I'm just one part of many, that was written a while back in The New Yorker by Ryan Liebenthal. And and you can go to the the website of debtcollective.org if you want to join up with people who are thinking strategically about how to use legal and other tools to resist unjust debts. And then there's also some great organizations who are sort of more more lawyerful and litigation and policy focused that are worth knowing about. One is the Student Borrower Protection Center, which is affiliated with the Student Loan Law Institute at UC Irvine. But the Student Borrower Protection Center is a separate organization that was created by the former student loan ombudsman of the CFPB, who's now actually back at the CFPB. But there's other people there who are doing great work. They've done they did organize a lot of the amicus briefs for this case. And have done other sort of reports and so on. And then there's, you know, National Consumer Law Center and others have been both are great summarizers of the law in this and other areas and have been active advocates on on the right side. So those are some places to go and some more reading to do if you're interested in digging in deeper. Well, thanks for that. And Luke, thank you so much for joining me in this conversation. My pleasure, Beth. Thanks for having me. And thanks to our listeners for finding Broken Law. If you missed last week's episode about the Supreme Court ethics, or lack thereof, I encourage you to go back and check that out. Jeannie Fresca spoke with Mark Joseph Stern from Slate and Chris King from Demand Justice about the need for a binding code of ethics for our highest court. You can catch that episode wherever you are listening to this one. If you're enjoying Broken Law, help us bring the show to more listeners by recommending it to a friend and leaving us a review. Also, make sure to follow us on social media at ACS Law and hashtag Broken Law Podcast. You can also find our episodes and show notes on our website, acslaw.org slash podcast. Together, we'll speak truth to power about the law, 
whose interests it really serves and whose it does not. 